podcast talking all things health technology and NHS IT. Welcome to Digital Health Unplugged. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Digital Health Unplugged. I'm your host, Jordan Soloff, news reporter at Digital Health. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Jessica Morley, postdoctoral researcher at the Digital Ethics Centre at Yale University. Um, Jess, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast, while stateside, of course. How are you, first of all? <laughs> um, thanks, Jordan. No, thank you for having me. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Very good, thanks. Yeah, um, we're very excited that Jess will be giving a keynote speech at this year's Digital Health Rewired in Birmingham, which we'll get onto a little bit later in the episode. We'll also chat about Jess's recent PhD as well. Congrats on that. Um, but first of all, st- starting with a bit more kind of about you and your background, I guess. Um, could you tell our listeners about your career journey to date, kind of working in the NHS and Department of Health and Social Care to kind of that transition into academia? What motivated that transition and how's that kind of influenced your perspective, I suppose, on healthcare policy and data science? Mm, sure. So I originally left university, so I left Oxford the first time back in 2012 uh, with an undergrad degree in geography. And I went to do six weeks worth of data analysis for the NHS at that time. It was my local NHS, so it was Richmond, um, Richmond Borough NHS, and it was transitioning from PCT to CCG. And I sort of went to do that off the back of my statistics part of my degree. And really, instead of staying for six weeks, I ended up staying for nearly two years. I did a bunch of different stuff from strategy to commissioning to managing primary healthcare budgets. Then I sort of bounced out and went and did consultancy for a little while, which I absolutely hated. Then I ended up back in the Department of Health and Social Care. Um, This was like 2016, 2017, working in what was at the time the tech policy team inside Department of Health and Social Care on a really wide variety of tech policy. So anything from launching the NHS app to we were doing some research on the impact of social media and children and young people's mental health and how that might be regulated. But increasingly over that period of time, AI became sort of the big topic uh, of conversation, both in the public, but also in policy. This was around the time when, you know, you had DeepMind and the Royal Free introducing streams, but you also had Moorfields Eye Hospital and the really exciting work led by um, Professor Piers Keane over there, also with Google. And so I got involved. The first piece of policy I did in that perspective was we wrote the NHS Code of Conduct for data-driven health and care technologies, and then NHS X arrived, and I sort of ended up being the subject matter expert for AI. Now, I should say that that makes it sound like fancier than it was. I just happened to be in that position because I could write a line of computer code. And I guess after during that period of time, I started to become increasingly uncomfortable. I felt like the level of knowledge and skills that we're supposed to have in order to be making decisions with regards to policy that would have that much of a significant impact on the healthcare service was just not really there. And I couldn't really find anyone who had that knowledge that I felt balanced between policy and tech and ethics and regulation and all these different things. And so I was sort of like, okay, fine, if I can't find the person, I'll go and become that person. So I applied to go back to Oxford originally to do my MSc. 
um, in the Oxford Internet Institute in social science of the internet. I was supposed to do that part time for two years and that was sort of supposed to be it. Um, then that is not what happened uh, halfway halfway through that period. So after my first year of doing the MSc part time while still working as a civil servant, I became employed by the university by Professor Ben Goldacre, who I know we'll talk about um, at what became the Bennett Institute for Applied Data Science, stayed there then for three and a half years. And during that period of time, I also got accepted to do the to do the PhD full time um, with my supervisor, Professor Floridi, and was very lucky to get funded by the Wellcome Trust. So that sort of is how that transition happened in terms of how that's influenced my perspective. I think it really gives me insight from both sides of the equation. So I often think, for example, that academia can be too ivory tower or too, you know, too glass box, and it can think very much in terms of perfection. This is what should absolutely happen and this should be the right thing, but it can sometimes forget about all of the additional constraints that exist when you're actually trying to deal with something in the real world, which is what policy gives you experience of. So policy will give you exposure to the fact that it's not just about thinking through whether this particular policy will work for data protection and health you've also got to think about well if we do that what are the impacts on the economy and and how might this interact with policy that's being put out by the department of digital media culture and sport or it's being put out by um you know bays at the time you know business and engineering and industry so i think that really has changed my perspective though Academia gives me greater insight and depth into policy, and policy gives me greater insight into the complexities of the real world. Mm -hmm. Great, yeah, fantastic summary there of kind of the impressive journeys you've had so far and how the um, kind of perspectives changed. Um, of course, you're involved quite heavily in projects like Open Safely and the Goldacre Review, something we've covered quite a bit on Digital Health News, and there were some kind of great recommendations made there. Could you explain the significance of those projects and what kind of impact they have had or you hope will have on policy moving forward? <laughs> yes. Um, so Open Safely, I think the significance of Open Safely and, you know, all credit goes to the team that are still over in the Bennett Institute uh, for their amazing software skills. The the impact and the significance of that was really demonstrating that it was possible to put privacy first and still enable um, large scale data analytics. I think, you know, at the at the time, we're going back four years now, it's a, it's a while, it's a while ago. Um, that I think at the time there was this overarching narrative that you could either have privacy or access. And this was always being played off as like some kind of false dichotomy. Either we give everybody access and we get all this amazing research and it's going to benefit the healthcare service perfectly, or we can maintain patients' privacy. Um, and that just that narrative is just really not working because it was false. It's not true. You can have both. You can provide broad access and maintain patient privacy. And Open Safely really demonstrated that. And as a consequence, it really demonstrated that actually there is very significant public support for the use of health data for research. Um, if it is done in the quote unquote right way, you know, we did, we took part in a citizen's jury in the middle of the pandemic, looking at public attitudes towards the different data initiatives that were introduced and Open Safely came out 
on top in terms of public support by a, like a you know a mile. It was hugely supported. Um, so that's really had a very significant impact on policy because now we've seen things come out with the you know NHS England does now have a sort of trusted research environment or what they call secure data environment policy which is first so it was sort of i suppose show by doing was the significance of of open safely the gold acre review uh, yes we had a huge number of recommendations in that um probably far too many but we mm -hmm. we we spoke to a lot of people and we we were very excited there again that has had some influence in terms of it reinforced that message of secure data environments that's definitely been one of the key things that's been taken up by policy there are a number of other things that appeared so for example if you look in the nhs data strategy there's references to open code there's a whole bunch of things in there also around the skills for analysts we have we have like the skills observatory now um all of that sort of stems from the gold acre review but it's important I think to stress that policy is a very I suppose collaborative and evidence-based process and so you, it's it's you can never as much as I might like to sit here and be like oh this thing that I wrote that made that happen that's not really yeah. ever true. there's all there's always multiple um multiple people who were involved in and multiple influences um but our main aim was always that we didn't want the review to become shelfware. We wanted it to have some kind of impact. And if all that impact was, was starting a conversation, which I think it did, then I'm happy with it. Absolutely, it's definitely had an impact. Um, as I said earlier, huge congratulations on completing your PhD. I can't imagine kind of how much work goes into that. I don't <laughs> want to think about it to be honest, because I know it's a lot. Um, do you have to kind of share an overview, I suppose, of kind of your research on designing an algorithmically enhanced NHS and kind of what the, the main objectives and recommendations were that kind of emerged from all of that body of yeah, work? Of course. Well, thank you um, for the congratulations. Yes, it was a huge it was a huge amount of work. I don't know if I would necessarily recommend working a full time <laughs> job doing a full time PhD on health data science during a global pandemic. But, you know, there we are. Um, my my so the objectives of it was it stems back, I guess, to what I was saying right in that first question of of I'm really wanting to generate the knowledge and the, about the complexities of this type of thing. So my my question when I was writing the proposal for my PhD was essentially how do we get AI into the healthcare system in the right way? Um, and over time that morphed into thinking about what are the information infrastructure requirements so that underpinnings really of the whole system that would enable successful implementation and I decide I define successful as technically feasible socially acceptable ethically justifiable and legally compliant and then from there I went through and broke down all of those system requirements and they look at the information requirements the technological requirements the sort of skills and knowledge management requirements the governance requirements and the ethics requirements um, to real together this big conceptual model of what successful implementation of AI or what I focus specifically in the thesis on algorithmic clinical decision support software. Um, and there are a number of main insights that come from that. The first is that the most basic is that the information infrastructure at the moment is just not fit for purpose. It's it's needs a huge amount of work, whether that be updating the law because the law is really struggling in multiple multiple directions you know medical device law is not really 
being able to keep pace with with clinical decision support software that involves AI, but neither is consumer protection law or liability law or discrimination law. Data protection law is really out of date for dealing with these types of things. Then you've got actual technical architecture. Um, you know, everybody loves to talk about the fact that the NHS has this amazing data resource, which it absolutely does. The NHS's data is is a phenomenal resource, but we cannot give this perpetuate this myth that it's just perfect. It's like a gold mine at the end of the rainbow for leprechauns to find, right? It's it's actually requires an enormous amount of work to make it workable it needs curation it needs it needs to be standardized it needs to be made more interoperable um, and then we have facts of the fact that we need clinicians to feel as though they still maintain autonomy over the decisions that they are making with their patient care um, and we all the way through to the fact that the NHS is built on these wonderful principles of universality and patient-centered care and the fact that we always want shared decision making and and everybody should have equal access and all of these beautiful principles which are still valid today you know we published a paper last week in the bmj looking at how valid those principles are for today's society but they can all be undermined and flipped on their head if we don't get implementation right and we'll only get implementation right by changing these foundations and by designing that infrastructure so that's sort of main conclusion number one um, i won't bore everybody with with talking through the the exact specifics of the conceptual model you can go and read it if, if you're that interested um, but the second the second sort of main conclusion was that i think we're trying to throw ai too broadly so if you read the narrative, if you read from policy, but if you, if you read the mass media, it gets the impression that AI is going to solve everything. Like we, AI is solved death. We, 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 we've got no more problems. We're just going to throw AI at absolutely everything. Um, and I think what that that really risks is becoming, um, you know, sort of jack of all trades, master of none. Um, and what I say in this thesis is that we should focus more specifically on information needs rather than information wants. So an information need is something where we know there is a gap. We know that if we fill that gap with this specific piece of information, we have evidence to say that that will deliver an outcome that we wanted to achieve. And then we can make AI work to improve the usability, utility, efficacy and trustworthiness of NHS information to meet those information needs. Um, and if we focus on that sort of more narrow function, we might actually have a better chance of making this stuff work rather than assuming it's going to solve the current NHS crisis as a whole. Mm -hmm. Great, there's some really interesting points there and uh, if anyone's listening is interested then it'll be available to read of course. Um, must be quite a buzz looking back for, to say that kind of I've done that body of work, that must be a nice thing to kind of look it's back very, on. It's definitely very satisfying for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe not enjoyable completely when you're doing it. <laughs> But um, yeah, afterwards, yeah, great, great bit of work to have done. Um, looking more kind of currently at your role now then as a kind of postdoctoral researcher at the Yale uh, Digital Ethics Centre, what are your kind of primary responsibilities and kind of focus areas and how do you see that work, I suppose, contributing to the discourse on things like digital ethics, particularly in healthcare, of course? 
Mm. So the centre as a whole focuses on what we call the, the GELSI or the GELSI, depending on whether you like a hard G or a soft G, um, which is the governance, ethical, legal and social implications of digital technologies writ large. And then I obviously focus very specifically on health, but we have other members of the team who look at the sort of legal aspects of, of, of AI or um, compute governance, or there's a piece of work going on also in the lab that looks at um, street level bureaucracy so the the implementation of policies at a local level and how that's being increasingly automated so my responsibilities really are to lead the program of work that focuses very specifically on health um, and in terms of my research focus i build on this sort of theory that I am that I have developed, uh, which is that the infosphere is a social determinant of health. So we, we've talked about your environment influencing your health, your activities, your economy, your economic situation influencing your health. And now I am saying the informational environment that you live in also has a direct influence on your health, whether that be the information that you are consuming from the Internet or from social media or from platforms like TikTok and YouTube. Um, through to clinical decision support, which is what we've just talked about in my thesis, all the way through to apps and wearables, etc. Um, and then try and think through what are the implications of that? Who is benefiting from the fact that now that information has such a big influence on, on health? Who is being disadvantaged by that? And what are the sort of policies, regulations or design principles that we need to be putting in place in order to sort of make sure that that works for everyone in the, in the best in the best way possible in terms of contributing to the discourse on digital ethics the my main aim i suppose is as everybody who's listening to this because there are everyone who's health focused will be will be familiar with the concept of translate translational research so getting things out of the lab and then in, into the clinic um that's really what the influence that i want to have on digital ethics is getting it out of um universities like the ones that i i sit in and getting it into the into the real world and therefore translating it from high level principles in into really implementable practices whether that be actual code based practices or policy based practices great yeah and um what to ask you about this I mean, when it comes to healthcare data there's always mm. there's concerns of course about privacy data security it's always become hand in hand don't they how do you kind of balance and navigate um kind of leveraging data for innovation but also safeguarding patients privacy rights how do you kind of navigate that balance well the first thing is to not believe that they're one or the other so the, like I said at the beginning that that you can have both the second is not being in denial of the fact that this stuff does present privacy risks so we we tend to see a lot of the NHS has relied enormously on on um, pseudonymization and dissemination so take your names and addresses off stuff and then send data out across the system you know my friend uh, Dr Joe Zhang and I we we did a paper a few months back mapping the data flows across the NHS and it's huge the data is flowing all over the place we've got almost zero control over it it's it's um and it's nobody's fault that that has happened that's the traditional way but it does expose an enormous amount of privacy risk um, and then I think we also have got this increasing narrative you know it was, it was even out in in the report from the Tony Blair Institute last week we, we need to have this cradle to grave um, sort of 
record that follows people around the whole time that everybody can feed into and and it sits on your mobile phone um, and anybody can access it because innovation is what we want above above everything else um, I think that sort of mentality comes from an assumption that privacy is about who can see your data it's like oh if they can see the data then it's bad but if, if they can't see the data then it's fine privacy is actually about much 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 more than just what people can see it's also about what they can infer about you it's it's about what is done with that data and it's if we're talking philosophically it's about what impact does that have on your self-integrity so what impact does that have on your ability to understand what is happening to yourself and how and what in what is influencing the course of your life and then we have all of those things, plus the fact that medical data is highly sensitive. Medical data is highly sensitive, not just because it's private in the sense that I might not want somebody to know whether I have been diagnosed with a mental health condition or, or, or a, you know, STD. It's because that information had a significant implication for my life. That was a meaningful thing that happened and therefore I should have the right to control who has access to that information and who does what with it. So therefore we have to think of privacy in the round. There are technical things that we can do like secure data environments and trusted research environments that can keep data in place um, so that it's in we have richer data and fewer places with tighter access controls and then you can do things like federation um, and you know privacy by design and encryption so that nobody is ever physically touching the real data they're only ever sending analytics to the data and getting the results back which is how open safely works there are multiple other other things that do a similar thing um, but we also have to think about what controls and policies do we come up with with regards to who is allowed to access it um, for what purposes who gets to have a say um, and that requires doing other things like simplifying data controllership so if we're talking in the nhs the the data controllership in the nhs is a complete mess because there's thousands of data, individual data controllers um, we should be considering things like centralizing that maybe making it into some form of ownership owning by like a community interest company that has the patients and public who are in control and are making those decisions on behalf of everyone but the their, their genuine stakeholders in the room that is just about as much about privacy control versus access um, and supporting innovation because people are permissive if they feel as though there are rules that they understand that there is accountability and transparency and that there is a degree of control over what is happening to their data and therefore what is happening to their healthcare. Um, and so you have to combine all of those aspects. If you do that, then we won't have a problem and an, an innovation will absolutely, absolutely spark. Um, what we don't want is just this narrative that innovation is great for the sake of innovation and we can sacrifice privacy because um, the benefits of innovation will be worth it. Brilliant, yeah, some really good points there. Um, looking ahead then, it's never easy to ask a question about the future because I'm almost asking you to get a crystal ball and, and predict what might happen, which is, uh, we don't know what's going to happen, but what do you envision as kind of the future of healthcare data science and AI policy? And are there any kind of emerging trends, I guess, or AI tech that you believe will have a significant impact on the kind of healthcare field over the coming years? Uh, yeah, so as you say, it's a, it's a difficult question and when people ask me this question, I'm like, if I could genuinely do this, I would probably get paid an awful lot more money than I do. <laughs> um, but in terms of 
Trends, well, you cannot talk about AI and not talk about foundation models and generative AI. Um, that will have a big impact, I think, in two ways. One, because it's flipping its narrative on its head. So we have traditionally one of the reasons why AI adoption has actually been quite slow, aside from the infrastructural problems that I talked about earlier is also because AI is, has always been relatively narrow. You know, you train one model to do one ta very specific task and it does that thing really, really, really well. Um, but then you might have to have multiple models in order to do just an average day's work. Um, whereas what generative AI is now allowing us to do is to build things that are far more flexible. Um, it's it's not general purpose in the, in the sense of uh, you know, what when people think about there being algorithms that can come on and completely replace humans, but they do have flexibility in terms of being able to adapt to different tasks in real time and also to adapt to different needs of different people. So that will that will make a very big difference um, because it will simplify the sort of path from development to deployment in, in the fact that we no longer need to or will at some point no longer need to train multiple models to do multiple specific tasks. The second reason I think it's going to make um, a very big difference is that I have had a long running suspicion that AI is not going to change the world in healthcare by impacting clinical care. I think it will make some difference to clinical care. Um, I think it will actually improve healthcare more by taking away the pain of the operational management of the healthcare system. You know, think about how many tasks and wasted hours there are of people's brains because they have to type into electronic health record systems that are just a nightmare to work with or they've got to write discharge letters or or we have this insane system where you have a an x-ray in Charing Cross Hospital and then the results of that get printed and then they have to be scanned and attached as a fax or a pdf into to your GPs all of that problem that is the type of thing that generative AI can do extremely well. Same things like staff rostering and predicting of when when we might need certain types of staff in wards. So and traditionally the sort of old like machine learning stuff has not been fantastic at doing that, I think, because people have not necessarily paid attention to that being an angle of interest for the healthcare system is it's not as sexy, but we are definitely seeing that with with generative AI. There are far more focus there on using that type of thing to do patient notes and discharge notes and or do ambient monitoring of clinical con clinical consultations and and writing them up. Uh, when that comes to healthcare, the future of healthcare, data science, it will obviously change the techniques that we use. Um, it will change the skills that you need. Um, we we already seeing Gen AI as well that can help people write code. And we also seeing the shifts from the skills being writing in code to being able to prompt or to tweak or fine tune models more than build them from from the ground up. Um, so it will change the field in in that regard. The it will also help potentially help with some of the privacy issues because your generative AI can also be used to generate synthetic data. So we may end up in a scenario where we're not so reliant on real patient data all the time, although there are some complexities with that, um, which is why I'm caveating it heavily. Uh, in terms of the impact on AI policy, 
I think we were going to need to move away from policy being about specific tech. Um, so where, where we might have, you know, in the past seen policy that comes out about AI, about apps, um, or we've, we've seen policy come out about AI, or we've seen policy come out about, you know, machine learning. Um, I think we will instead need to move towards an environment where policy is based on use case and risk um, and flexibility of the technology rather than the tech itself. Um, and the second way in which I think it will change the future of, of policy is I think we have to move away from silo data policy making. So where, where we have traditionally had um, data policy get made over here, tech policy get made over here, um, you know, commissioning and procurement policy get made over there, um, and safety audit and feedback policy made in a different place. Um, th those things that is irrelevant now um, because we are going to be deploying models that do all of those things all in one go. And so it doesn't make sense for those policies to be being made in in individual silos. And so I think that's where you'll you'll also get big change. So move away from tech specific policy and move away from siloed policy making, I think is how that transition towards generative AI will impact the future. Um, but all of this is future casting, so take me with a pinch of salt. I could be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, great. Some uh, brilliant points said there again. Um, finally, as I said, you'll be speaking in a key keynote session at Digital Health Rewired 2024. Are you looking forward to attending and speak at the event, first of all? And would you be able to give us a little flavour, a little sneak peek of what you might be talking about without giving too much away, of course? <laughs> um, am I excited? Yes, I'm very excited. I'm, I, uh, I am really looking forward to it. Um, it. It gives me an excuse to come back to the UK, but uh, also Digital Health Rewired is always one of the big highlights of the year because it's one of the very few times where basically everyone is in the same room. Um, mm -hmm. So there's always there's always a good uh, atmosphere um, and I'm excited about the people who are who are chairing, you know, you've got Harris, Harris is chairing the event and, and we've also got Ming Tang who's obviously super important in NHS England with me. Um, so yes, I'm very much looking forward to it. In terms of like a sneak peek, uh, the uh, the idea is to try and talk through some of the practicalities of, of AI um, into the healthcare system and balance the hope versus the hype um, by adding in a little bit of realism and focusing on these are the areas of policy that should be focused on to make it work and these are sort of the key messages also to to the primary stakeholders who who will be at the event so not just policymakers but also developers and and members of the of the healthcare community um as well mm -hmm. great um a reminder that rewired takes place on the 12th and 13th of march at the nec in birmingham a new venue for us um, it's been in london of course the last few years the program's now live on the Rewired website as well, so check that out. It's a really great lineup of speakers, and Jess is one of them. Just be speaking on the AI data and analytics stage on day two. So Wednesday, the 13th of March, that session's at 2 p.m. Also features Dr. Nadine Hatchet Haram of Proximi and Professor Erica Denton of NHS England. So really interesting session in store there. Um, we've reached the end of the episode. So Jess, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure, yeah. Looking forward to catching you at Rewired. Um, thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. Bye for now.
Thank you for listening to Digital Health Unplugged. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite podcast platform. And to find out about our latest news and events, head to our website, digitalhealth.net. Thank you.